singularity. My name is Nicola and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you guys enjoy this podcast, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. Number one is you can write a brief review on iTunes. Or number two is you can go to interviewthefuture.com and simply become a patron. Today, my guest on the show is David Loy. David is a professor, writer, and Zen teacher in the Sanbo Zen tradition of Japanese Zen Buddhism. He is a prolific author whose essays and books have been translated into many languages. He often lectures on Buddhism and modernity and what each can learn from the other with respect to some of our major issues, such as social and ecological issues. Some of David's books include The World is Made of Stories, A New Buddhist Path, Enlightenment, Evolution and Ethics in the Modern World, and most recently, Echo Dharma, Buddhist Teachings for the Ecological Crisis. Finally, David Loy is one of the founding members of the new Rocky Mountain Echo Dharma Retreat Center near Boulder, Colorado. So, David, welcome to Singularity FM. Thank you, Nicola. I'm uh, pleased for this opportunity. Fantastic. Let's uh, enjoy this journey that we're going to share together for the next couple of hours. So, as, let's say, two strangers meeting each other on a path are introducing to each other, and I may ask you, who is David Loy? How would you introduce yourself in a sentence or less? Well, from a Zen point of view, that's a very interesting question, and it would depend a lot on the path we're on, right? But to give a conventional answer, I'm a, occupationally, I'm a retired professor of Buddhist and comparative philosophy, um, longtime Zen practitioner, sometimes Buddhist teacher, and someone who's really concerned about finding the best way to respond to not only the ecological crisis, but what Chomsky calls the most dangerous moment in human history. So, David, it was actually kind of uh, an act of faith or, or karma, perhaps, that right when you're talking about Noam Chomsky quotes that we live in the most dangerous time of our civilization, my fire alarm got activated. Uh, and so, can you perhaps... Walk me, I, I lost a little bit the, the train of thought here. Can you perhaps walk me a little bit through whether you think you're first and foremost a Buddhist Roshi, a teacher, a philosopher, a book writer? I know you're concerned with sort of the, the ecological crisis, someone who is concerned with the ecological crisis as the foremost crisis of our civilization, but maybe if you were not to define yourself with respect to a crisis, but in your own right, how would you do that? Well, it's an interesting question because I don't think of those roles as separate. I think of them as different aspects of the same thing, right? So I am a Zen teacher uh, and I also write books, but you know, obviously the things I teach and the things I write about are very related. Um, Maybe I can mention a little bit about my background. I mean, my first love was philosophy. That was my major in college. Uh, and that included a year studying British analytic philosophy in London. Wow. Yeah, which basically educated me that I wasn't interested in British analytic philosophy 
or even really Western philosophy as it's usually taught, because it's, it's, as I realized later when I got into Buddhism, the issue with philosophy is that it, it, it wants to sort of grasp reality in the net of its concepts. It wants to find, you know, the expression that seems to reflect the way things really are. And, you know, what was important for me encountering Buddhism is that that wasn't really the answer that I was looking for, that I was looking for some alternative way of understanding and experiencing the world, that experience. And that's very much what Zen practice is about. It's not, I mean, Zen, Zen practice assumes that we're not going to be able to grasp reality philosophically or intellectually, but it is possible to experience it in a different way. So would it be fair to say that your first love was philosophy then? Yes, I think so. But then over time, my my understanding of what philosophy has changed. You know, uh, philosophy is important in Buddhism too, but it's very much understood differently. It's not about sort of grasping reality, but for something like Buddhism, it's much more about uh, the intellectual part of the spiritual path. And it's something that shouldn't be divorced from other types of practices, such as Zazen, meditation in, in Zen. Very well. So walk us through then, uh, what is it that philosophy left you wanting for that Buddhism provided for you? Well, it was interesting that that year in London, especially, uh, part of it is looking at the relationship between the philosophy and the philosophers, you know, looking at the lifestyle, looking at the way of being and, you know, asking myself, well, they can be very clever, but are they models of the way that I would actually want to live? And frankly, you know, they were very good people in their own way, but I didn't want to become like them. And it's interesting for me as a Buddhist practitioner, when I first met my Zen teachers at a retreat in Hawaii, from the very beginning, there was some deep connection. There was a sense that there was something really important here. Not only that I could learn from these people, especially Yamada Kohen Roshi, uh, but also I, I wanted to be like them. And, and that made a real difference, yeah. Yeah, I can I can associate with that very much. And that's one of the reasons why Socrates is one of the few kind of uh, philosophical teachers and philosophers of all time for me because he lived his message. Together with a few others, perhaps like Marcus Aurelius. And interestingly enough, just like the Buddha, they were mostly Buddha's contemporaries, whether in or or a few hundred year difference perhaps whether in ancient Greece or in ancient Rome and so on it's interesting you say that because there's been a lot of writing and reflection lately that suggests there has been interaction between Greece and uh, uh, India especially Buddhism uh, so there have been a couple of very interesting books on that topic and it looks very possible that they did actually influence each other Wow. I, I haven't heard about that so far. Can you perhaps share the titles or the authors of those books? I, I could if my memory were better. <laughs> okay, we'll put them in the show notes later on. Yeah, I can do that for sure. I have the book upstairs uh, in my uh, up 
in my bedroom, but I don't have it here down in the office. But for sure, that's important. It's the idea that, uh, you know, philosophy isn't just something, you know, something to be understood intellectually, but it's really about transforming the quality of your life. I mean, and also the quality of your death. Since so much early philosophy, as you know, you know, it's, it's a preparation for death, as, as uh, Socrates and the Stoics would say. And I think that's a pretty good thing to say about Buddhism as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. Well, maybe it's a reminder of uh, our critical times, right? One of the many uh, fire alarms that we need to respond to. <laughs> so, yeah, for me, philosophy has always been a living thing. In other words, and, and it's interesting that you would say that you had interested in analytic philosophy, because for me, it was the opposite. I always lacked interest in analytic philosophy, but I always loved ancient Greece, uh, Greek and Roman philosophy, uh, and later on, maybe existentialism as 20th century, uh, more modern philosophy, because they were more practical, I find. I find that if philosophy is very abstract, whether we're talking about Martin, Martin Heidegger, whether we're talking about uh, Kant uh, in, in some ways, uh, you know, and, and start arguing about what Kant actually meant to say, because he was so brilliant and so smart among many other philosophers that to this day, we argue about what they were even trying to say. And to me, that's kind of the opposite of philosophy. First of all, if you're so brilliant, you should say your philosophy in a way that both the shepherd, the uneducated, and the most educated, and everyone in between should be able to understand it and associate it and take something away from it. That's the whole the part of being smart, is not to, to force others to, to kind of chase the impossible of your brilliance or genius, but to bring it down to everyone else, to make it accessible, and to make it practical for them to live it in their daily lives. And that's why I've always appreciated, as I said, uh, Stoic philosophy, uh, Socratic philosophy, Epicurean philosophy, by the way, uh, whether it's through Lucretius or Epicurus himself, and later on, um, existentialist philosophy. Well, let, let me say a few words in defense of both Kant and Heidegger. And this is kind of ironic, given where we started, right? Yes. But, I mean, I agree with you completely. Kant is very difficult to understand. I mean, he was not a great stylist, that's for sure. But, you know, when you look at his position, his role in Western philosophy, he was the one who realized something that I think the Buddhist had realized a long time ago in India, that we don't just perceive the world, but actually our mind organizes it. In other words, the, the, the world as we perceive it, including ourselves, as we understand and experience ourselves, that is actually a construct. And, uh, you know, that constructivism, I think, is, is an extremely important development. But uh, going on to Heidegger, it, my, my path wasn't through the ancients, but after analytic, I became very interested in the existentialists, uh, including some of the older people like uh, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. But curiously, Heidegger, not the Heidegger, the early Heidegger of being in time, but his last essays, there's something very... Odd, I don't know if I want to call them mystical, but they kind of opened the door. In fact, for me, they were one of the doors that opened to this other way of 
this possibility of the other way of experiencing the world. And, and so for him, uh, or his later philosophy, which is kind of amorphous, it, it's as if he sort of gave up trying to grasp the world conceptually in his own way. Um, that was really important in my, in my development. So anyway, I'm agreeing with you. The wonderful thing about the existentialists is, of course, that they, they understand what, what we're trying to point to. And this is one of the points of Buddhism, anyway, to embrace the paradox. I think you're a perfect paradox uh, example of that case, where you have kind of an inclination for analytical philosophy, which is very intellectual, maybe too much so even, and very challenging to even understand, let alone to practice. Uh, and on the other hand, you have uh, this kind of love for Buddhism, you teach Buddhism, Uh, and especially Zen Buddhism, which is like almost a dialectical opponent or, or opposite. I don't want to call it. Okay, let me ask you, let me put it as a, as a question. What's the, the dialectical relationship between Buddhism and Kantian philosophy? How would you postulate them in a relationship to each other? Well, again, I, I would say that... Um, Despite the way that he wrote, despite what he was trying to do, he, Kant, Immanuel Kant, really saw something clearly for the first time, that we experience the world in the way we do because of the way our minds work. And if our minds change, the world, including ourselves, will be experienced differently. And I think that's just really huge. Now, for Kant, he really doubted that was possible. Uh, in the case of Buddhism, though, there's very different types of techniques that enable that kind of transformation. Yeah, and maybe Nietzsche is kind of the halfway point between those two, because uh, he thought that the path to the overman or the ubermensch is through the heart, not through the mind. And so, of course, Kant, Kant was a rationalist, Buddhists are not rationalists, and Nietzsche is kind of perhaps halfway point in between. Help me out here. Yeah, well, I, I think you're exactly right. In in a way, Nietzsche is my favorite Western philosopher of all. I've got a whole chapter on him in one of my early books, and he keeps popping up in all the other books as way. I, I think he had this this similar intuition that that there are other ways to experience the world. And uh and, and even the idea of an Ubermensch, it's 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 about Um, I mean, the Ubermensch lives in the world in a different way than you and I and most people do. And why is that possible? You know, because for him, the world is a different place than it is for most people. Would we say that the Nietzschean Ubermensch is like the Buddhist Bodhisattva? There are some similarities, I'd say. There's also some some important differences too. I'm trying to remember what I I, I said in that chapter about Nietzsche and and where I think he, he you know he he still has this understanding of the will that that sometimes can be very problematical. Whereas in the case of say Buddhism, and in the case of the Bodhisattva, there there's a sense of beyond will. Uh, going going beyond our, our usual understanding of willing and and trying to be somebody special or or trying to organize the world in the way that we want it to be. And maybe not choosing and picking. So, for sure.
Yeah, there's that famous line in the uh, third patriarch, right? Uh, yeah, um, the Zen path is not difficult. It's just not about picking and choosing. And and with Nietzsche, you do get the sense of sort of imposing his will on the world. And in the case of Buddhism, there's more more sort of yielding, more flexibility, I think, but still very much concerned about dukkha, suffering in the broad sense, where that comes from and doing what we can to alleviate it. Okay, we jumped into the deep water, so let's just backpedal a little bit here and, and let's lay down the foundation, first of all, of um, Zen, of, of Buddhism in general and Zen Buddhism in particular, and then we can actually, you can walk us through how or, or what are the best ways to actually take those concepts and apply them both to our daily lives, but also to the greatest challenges that we are facing today as a civilization. So what is Buddhism in general, and how is Zen Buddhism in particular different than Buddhism in general? Oh, those are a couple of big, big questions, right? Yeah. I guess what, I mean, obviously there's lots of debates about Buddhism, right? Is Buddhism is a philosophy? Is it a religion? Is it a path? Is it a mystical? Ex and of course, in, in one way, it's all of those. I mean, it, it serves all of these different functions for different people. I guess what I would emphasize, though, is, is that it is a path, which is to say a, a different way of, of living in this world, which, as I've been saying, can lead to a different way of uh, experiencing, not only experiencing the world, but experiencing our relationship with it. Um, and in the case of Zen, I mean, Buddhism, although I don't think this, it was this case, this way for the Buddha, uh, you know, Buddhism has become a religion in the sense that there's emphasis on faith and, you know, the Buddha in some form or other will save us. You know, this is very common. Also in South Asia, so much of Buddhism as it's actually practiced is about accumulating merit by giving money and food to monks and things like that, right? But uh, I guess what's distinctive about Zen, it's very clear that there's there are particular practices, especially the meditation, the Zazen, that are essential. And, and the claim is that these practices can lead to an experience, what I would call a, a non-dual experience, uh, that, that gives us insight into the way the world is when we're not constructing it in the way that we usually do. It's, you know, the construction has to do with our desires, with our ways of thinking, with our feelings. And if we can let go of them and our thoughts, then there's this possibility of opening up this, this moment of letting go or forgetting ourselves, like Dogen says, when we're experiencing the world in a, in a very different sort of way. And then the challenge is, well, first of all, that first glimpse is, is usually not very deep, so we need to continue the practice. But, but the real greater challenge is integrating this experience into how we actually live day to day. And of course, that's going to eventually bring us to these questions about social engagement and... Uh, yeah, uh, before we get there, though, I, I just want to make clear some of the sort of postulates or what are called the four noble truths of, of Buddhism, uh, just so that 
perhaps we get on the same page with some of our listeners and viewers who may not be familiar with them off the top of their heads. So for Buddhism, there's four noble truths. Um, number one is life is a suffering. Number two is suffering comes from desire. Number three is you can stop desire and you can stop your suffering. And number four is you can accomplish that by following the eightfolded path, which is having the right view, the right intention, the right speech, the right action, the right concentration, right livelihood, right effort, and right mindfulness. Do you want to add or correct anything of that? Well, it, it, it's worth mentioning that that's the most common summary of early Buddhism, what we call Pali Buddhism, right? Indian, Indian Buddhism originally. Uh, but for example, my Zen master in Japan, where I lived and practiced for 20 years, he never talked about the Four Noble Truths. I mean, in Zen, it's very rare indeed that that would be mentioned. Uh, and, and then, too, I, I would sort of qualify each of those, like saying life is dukkha. Uh, as you said, the usual English translation is suffering, but that doesn't really work unless we understand it in the broadest possible sense, right? Not just physical, mental pain, but Frustration, dissatisfaction, anxiety, or my favorite, dis-ease, that there's some fundamental dis-ease built into our usual way of, of, of life. And then when Buddhism talks about the problem as desire, maybe craving is better. Somehow the idea that we're, we're always wanting uh, more and more. Um, I mean, the, the way that I would the way what I, that I tend to look at it is that the fundamental problem, the fundamental delusion, and that's the other thing Buddhism emphasizes, is the delusion of separation, because that's another really important Buddhist teaching everywhere, which you didn't mention, uh, the anatta teaching, the no-self or non-self teaching, which means basically that the, the sense of separation or duality, that I'm sort of inside behind the eyes, inside the ears, and the world is external, objective, out there. That sense of separation, that's an important part of that construct, and it's delusive, and it causes all kinds of suffering. And the fundamental, the, the fundamental suffering comes from the fact that this so-called separate self is, is basically uh, insecure. It doesn't have any separate reality, so it's, it's always at some level, insecure and comfortable, trying to secure itself, trying to make itself feel more real. Uh, and, and that's what I tend to focus on in, in my Yeah, and is it fair to say that that's what Zen Buddhism does specifically in general uh, through Zazen meditation perhaps is to unmask or remove the curtain behind, in front of that illusion to, to, to kind of let us experience uh, or, or taste, even if you will, that kind of illusion and, and separateness that that is that is really uh, the source of of many uh, of much of that suffering. Um, that that's one way to say it. But um, it the important thing is if if we're going to sort of dispel or see through that delusion of separation. Um, we have to forget the self, forget our usual sense of self, or let go of it. Like the great Japanese Zen master Dogen said, right? To, uh, to, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self, to study the self is to forget the self, 
to forget the self is to realize your intimacy with the, you know, the the ten thousand things. So it it, what's interesting about it is that forgetting yourself is not something you can will yourself to do. That's the limitations of will. So you do it indirectly in your practice by focusing so completely on something, and in the process of focusing on it, you eventually lose the sense that there's a you that's doing it. And that's what sort of enables this letting go to happen. And you don't know when that's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to happen. Uh, I think it was Trungpa who said, uh, enlightenment is always an accident, but meditation makes you accident prone. <laughs> wow, I've never heard that, but that's brilliant. When you are speaking too, it reminded me, I think it was Rumi who said, I am another version of you. You are another version of me. Nice. Another basic Buddhist principle is interdependence, right? I mean, if you think about it, the denial of a separate self is because you and I are not separate from each other, that we're, uh, we're very much connected, causally affecting each another all, all the time, for sure. Very well, David. So... We laid the, the kind of most basic and simplified versions or foundations of Buddhism and Zen Buddhism. Let's talk now about how we can apply them in our daily life, what they can help us with in resolving some of our greatest challenges, uh, like, for example, climate change. Uh, uh, and perhaps maybe even after that, we can talk about what are the implications of our relationship with respect to technology, uh, transhumanism, which is the merger of men and machine, maybe even other species such as the potential of uh, artificial intelligence, and so on. So let's take it step step by step. What's the kind of most easiest or or basic way that you recommend people take that kind of Buddhist insight? about who we are in the world and apply it or live it practically in their daily life? What are the kind of small things we can do if, if we can start with them? The, the low-hanging fruit, if you will. Sure. Well, let me start uh, with two small Zen stories, right? In one of them, the student asked the master, um, what should we do when difficult times come, such as we certainly have now? And... Um, the, you know, the master, I think it was Junmen or Unman. Um, um, actually, I think it wasn't. But anyway, uh, uh, the response was welcome. In other words, our, 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 our path, the Zen path, the spiritual path, isn't about avoiding difficult times. Uh, it's about opening up to them. And interestingly, when we actually fully meet these these difficult times it's often when the greatest personal transformation occurs right we we change as opposed to the tendency to kind of turn away from them and we can see some of that in buddhism too but even the kind of fundamental religious tendency to sort of want to transcend or escape this world i mean i think we have a real problem that our religious traditions because the goal is to achieve some kind of transcendence they end up devaluing this world to some degree as kind of a means to some higher goal, like, you know, an eternity in heaven with God. Uh, this world is just qualifying for it. And you'll see some of that in Buddhism, too. There are people who understand the goal as kind of a nibbana, uh, 
a, a different dimension of of reality that's indifferent to what's going on here. But but the understanding of Buddhism that I uh, is pretty clear in Zen, and and I think it's more and more clear in Buddhism generally is, um, well. That, that leads me to the second story, right? Um, a student asked the uh, Zen master, and this was Unmen, uh, I believe, Unman in Japanese, Unmen in Chinese. Um, uh, what is the fruit of a lifetime of practice, right? What do we get from all this meditation, spending maybe years sitting on our butts with sore legs, sore <laughs> minds, right? And, uh, you know, Unman just said simply responding appropriately right? Responding appropriately, uh, you know, which is going to bring us eventually to this question, how do we respond appropriately in a world in such a dangerous situation? But the really important point here is that usually we're not doing that because we're caught up in our own heads, our own ideas, maybe our own gaining ideas, what can we get from this situation? Or, you know, we're preoccupied by something or other that in effect distracts us from being fully right here and now. So really the goal of Zen practice and all genuine Buddhist practice is really letting go of that filter that you referred to, the filter of our thoughts, concepts, emotions, and so forth. And really by being here, being able to understand what's going on and responding appropriately to that. So that connects with what I was saying earlier about non-duality, that our usual sense of self, we have this separate self and because I'm separate from this situation, my well-being is ultimately separate from this situation, right? That, that's the usual way of thinking. And the kind of non-duality is really being fully here, fully now, and not feeling that my own life, my own well-being is separate from the whole. I mean, that's the ground from which we, we naturally uh, want to become engaged and naturally want to do what we can. I remember when my, uh, my, my Zen master in Japan, Yamada Cohen, he, he, he really made a point that whenever anyone you know, has a, a genuine, what he called kensho or glimpse of enlightenment or opening, uh, that's always spontaneously accompanied by feelings of compassion, by, by feelings of concern. It just goes along with the territory because it involves letting go of the delusive sense of, of separate self. So the people who have managed to accomplish that are often referred to as bodhisattvas or the awakened ones. Uh, what's the insight or the, the guidance or the directions that they can give us in addressing what you said was perhaps the biggest problem that humanity is facing today, which is to say the ecological crisis that we're facing? Right. Well, let me just start by saying briefly that actually the Bodhisattva path isn't about following that uh, eightfold path that you mentioned earlier. Uh, for Bodhisattvas, the focus is on developing what's called the uh, six perfections. Uh, in other words, it, it's really about kind of character transformation. Uh, become and, and, and the six character traits that we try to perfect or develop to the highest possible degree, let's see if I can remember them. Uh, generosity, uh, moral behavior, patience, determination, uh, mindfulness, and finally, prajna or wisdom. And it 
again, it's the kind of wisdom I've been trying to talk about, the seeing through the delusion of, of separation. But I think the important thing to remember um, when you look at the Buddhist tradition from the perspective of the challenges that we face now, Buddhism doesn't tell us what to do, and certainly the Bodhisattva path doesn't give us specifics about what to do, but it really does have a lot of really helpful in uh, sort of guidance about how to do what we do. And, and what I focus a lot on, and maybe I should add here, I, I, I think the Bodhisattva path is the single most important thing that Buddhism does have to offer here that can help us respond. Um, what, what it emphasizes is that bodhisattvas have this double practice. They, they continue to work on their own personal transformation, but ultimately they realize that our own personal transformation isn't separate from the larger social transformation. And it's not just that they go together nicely, but they really depend on each other. And, and it's that combination, the, the kind of grounding that or stability or serenity that you can have or that your your personal meditation can ground you in, that can be enormously helpful, maybe essential for engaging in in a deep and fruitful way in the kinds of problems we have now. How important it is that grounding can be to help us from getting burned out or uh, angry or frustrated or or whatever. Yeah, and it reminds me to the past that uh, Plato talks about. Uh, in his allegory of the cave, where the philosopher walks walks out of the cave and is able to contemplate the good, which is like the sun, overwhelming and radiant and and really amazing. But yet, he drags himself right back into the darkness, into the cave, with those wretched souls who are still watching the reflections on the wall and and thinking that that's the real reality and and he's taken for a for a madman and a dangerous one at that by by those people even risking everything and yet the true philosopher goes back to kind of bring his knowledge and his insight and his wisdom of the good to everyone else as much as possible even despite the terrible price that he most likely would have would have to pay so that that reminds me very much to to what you were talking about the bodhisattva because there is this kind of idea about buddhism and it's been criticized occasionally for it that you know you can become a buddhist ascetic monk go up somewhere up on the top of a mountain live for 50 years in a monastery and contemplate and meditate all day long and and live this kind of serene and beautiful life of, you know, uh, enlightened being. And yet, what's the point of it all if you all just keep it there at the top of the mountain and no one else benefits from it or you don't share the fruits of that um, of that insight, of that knowledge, of that experience with anyone else, right? And, and, and especially in a situation of crisis, then you have even more so the, the responsibility to not stay at the top of the mountain, but to come down, which is, interestingly enough, Nietzsche's That Spoke Zarathustra starts with that. The wise man comes down from the mountain, right? So, so in a way, what we're trying to do here is discuss, and what your book, Echo Dharma, is about, 
is about bringing down the 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 the, the Buddhist uh, wi wisdom and 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 lessons perhaps to our ecological crisis, and is giving us specific insights or directions, if you will, how to do it. So, why don't you share with us uh, that that path, the path that you call the Eco Sattva or Eco Dharma? Right. Um, but let me just first ma make a reference to Socrates, since since you did, or or Plato. Uh, and I've I've been a bit slow here. I, I'm only now realizing you must have been a philosophy major too, Nicola, or at least you read a great deal of it. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel, you know, like uh, Plato talks about the danger of going back in the cave, like you said, and the the guy might be seized and killed by the other people. And that really seems to be a reference to what happened to Socrates. Right? It's interesting in Buddhism, according to a Buddhist, I don't know if you want to call it myth, whatever, but right after his enlightenment, the, the, the Buddha supposedly was very reluctant to teach because he said, you know, what I've realized, this is, this is profound, this is tough, people are not going to realize it. Uh, and then he finally decided to go ahead because he said, well, there are, people out there with just a little dust in their eyes and they'll be able to uh, to pick it up. You know, they'll be able to understand. So it, it's very much the same kind of thing, uh, you know. But in the end, the Buddha met the Socratic end too. He was poisoned supposedly too. No, not not usually. They, they, think, they think that, I mean, according to what we have in the Pali Canon, he, he became ill and had stomach upset, and, and it looks like he he uh, ate what was called pig's delight. That's the literal in Pali, and we don't know if if that was pork or, or, or something like it, but he basically got dysentery, and that ev eventually killed him. But none of the major stories uh, suggest that he was actually poisoned. I mean, he was lucky, and unlike Socrates, well, of course, Socrates was pretty old too. You know, after his enlightenment, the Buddha taught for like 45 years, and uh, so he had a pretty successful time of it. But as far as I know, he, he, he wasn't poisoned. Yeah. Well, we'll take your word over mine any day. My, my impression was that because he begged his food uh, one of the time, and I know, Yes, as you said, we know he had stomach upset and all that, but the theory, at least that I've read, is that whoever gave him the food probably poisoned it. And uh, of course, we're speculating. We can't know for sure, but I think you 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 know a lot more about that context that, than I do. Uh, but, but Socrates was also a very fortunate man, just like the Buddha, because he was in, I think, his 72nd or 73rd year when he died. So he thought, you know, for a good 40, 50 years, too. And and getting back to your main question about uh, eco-dharma, I mean, eco-dharma and the eco-sattva path, you can say that's just a specific version of the more general bodhisattva path, right? So, and because for, for all the forms of traditional Buddhism in Asia, they're all pre-modern. None of them is really dealing with... Uh, you know the climate emergency or any of the other ecological uh, crises that that we're facing today, um, but 
nonetheless, there are these sort of implications that, that we can draw out. And as I already mentioned, the idea of the bodhisattva is, is, is the first one. Um, I think there's a kind of interesting parallel. I mentioned this du- double practice of working on one's own transformation and being engaged in the world, helping other people. Ecologically, too, you can see how we also need to work individually on reducing our own carbon footprint. But the reality is, given the problems that we're facing today, that that's insufficient. I I remember what uh, Bill McKibben said when he was in Paris for the uh, climate talk. Somebody asked him, what can I do as an individual? And he said, well, stop being an individual. The point being there that uh, individual action is not enough. We're facing structural, institutional problems, right? Buddhism has always talked about the problems. Bad karma, suffering is created when we are motivated by what Buddhism calls the three poisons, greed, ill will, and delusion. And I think the reality is in the modern world, they're institutionalized, right? For example, if... um, if greed means you never have enough, you always want more. I think, frankly, that's a pretty good description of our economic system. Right? You were talking about craving uh, just a few minutes ago. I think craving is what, what our civilization is, in a way, all about. When you turn your TV, everything is paid for by ads which just are designed to enhance your craving, to never satisfy your craving, but even when it's after it's been satisfied, to enhance and deepen and widen it. <laughs> and and the craving is never satisfied for very long, right? It's always the next thing you buy is going to make you happy. And, and I think we can understand that from a kind of Buddhist standpoint, which traditionally has just looked at it as an individual problem, but it, it's a social, it's an economic problem. And so... You know, if we're going to try to think about how to respond to that, we've got to do it together. It's it's not about, you know, David or Nicola being able to sort of make a difference much on an individual level. We need to sort of come together with other people and address uh, fossil fuel corporations and and the people that they buy and, and the judges and the Congress people that they buy. And, you know, we have some pretty big institutional challenges that require us to do to do more in that direction something that traditional buddhism hasn't really talked about but it just seems a kind of a natural development of buddhism given the situation that we're in well on the one hand you have buddhism which was kind of super progressive for its day in many ways for example by incorporating women uh, and so on by uh, abolishing castes for people who have uh, kind of embraced the path, if you will, and yet who have joined the sangha. Yes, yeah. joined the sangha or started the path. But but at the same time, they became kind of a social. Uh, I don't want to say foundation, but or supporter even, but but kind of like one of the pillars, if you will, uh, of the social uh, stratification of its day. Uh, And as you mentioned, uh, Buddhism has not started many rebellions that I know of or many revolutions, and in fact has benefited tremendously for being very cozy 
to you know people at the top of the power uh, pyramid, uh, whether emperors, whether kings, whether despots of all kinds. Uh, so so at the one hand, it's very revolutionary and progressive, or it was originally. Then on the other hand, it kind of helped entrenched the social stratification, whether in India, whether in other places, and it called for anything but revolution. <laughs> I'm afraid you're exactly right there, uh, in, in the sense that I think the Buddha was a lot more progressive than the institution that developed after he died, right? So as, as you said, he, he, he actually created a sangha, a monastic order for women, because he realized they had the same potential to awaken. And when you join this sangha as a monk or a nun, as a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, you lost caste. Pretty radical in that day, right? Um, but after he died, what happened? I mean, patriarchy reasserted itself and uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and the uh, nun sanghas tended to die out. And also early Buddhism wanted to be, the early Buddhism was a cult. And, you know, in order to be successful, in order to thrive, it wanted and it often received royal support. So it didn't challenge, like you say, the political order. Uh, and in its function, it became quite conservative. But, but here's the important thing that I would emphasize or, and that I build on. Um, from the very beginning, Buddhism has emphasized almost most of all impermanence and insubstantiality. Impermanence in the sense that not only are things changing all the time, but so much so that they're not really things. It goes back to what we were saying earlier about interdependence. It's really the world isn't a collection of things. It's uh, uh, a confluence of processes. And one of these or several of these processes are Buddhism and, and how Buddhism, we can see the way Buddhism transformed every time it went to a new culture, to China, to Tibet, to Japan, Korea, and so forth. It changed radically by interacting with the local culture. And what's fascinating now is in the last century or so, Buddhism comes to the modern world, which is also globalized, but also a world, as we've been saying, which is in a really dangerous situation. And so, frankly, I'm, I'm more concerned about the potential of Buddhism and Buddhist teachings for the future than what it has been in the past. Because I think coming to modernity, coming to a situation where it has to respond appropriately to these challenges, there's this incredible potential that some of us are trying to sort of develop and unwrap. Yeah, and I hope people can see that your version of Buddhism is a kind of a very kind of a modern, up-to-date Buddhism that's not like separate or uh, ascetic in its nature and, and divorced from from you know daily problems that people can have, but actually is one of engagement, one of uh, a kind of uh, praxis, daily daily practice, uh, and one of uh, adaptation, maybe even or or evolution of, of the Buddhist principles to our modern context, to our modern lives. So you're not kind of very orthodox uh, in that way. You're not very attached to the Buddhist metaphysics, for example. But rather, you're focused on the prajna, on the on the wisdom and the lessons that we can take away from from those stories to apply in our modern modern reality. So, tell us what are the three 
steps or elements uh, of eco sattva, as you call them? Uh, the three, the uh, I'm not completely sure what you are referring to, uh, but s something that I'm I'm often asked about, uh, you know, b because I wrote that book on eco dharma, which says pretty clearly that uh, Buddhism doesn't tell us what to do, but it, it tells us how to do it. Uh, and and there's a long discussion in there about non-attachment to results, which we can get into if you want. But some something, but but because of that book, you know, occasionally people will come to me and say, "Wow, I'm really concerned about what's happening to the earth. I really want to be an ecosatva, but I don't know what to do." And it's in response to that that I've sort of started offering three. Reflections, exactly. contemplations, meditations that some people find helpful. And uh, they are really meditations in the sense that I think each of them really takes some time. They, they, couldn't, they shouldn't be done too quickly. We really need to sort of get into them. The first one is, what do I have to offer? You know, taking account of everything, my age, my health. Um, am I retired? Do I still need to earn money? Where am I living? Um, are people dependent upon me? What are my skills? What you know, taking all of that into account, what do I really have to offer in this dangerous situation? Uh, the second reflection is looking outward. Given given who I am, given what I have to offer, what are the serious possibilities for me? I mean, if you look at the ecological or, and all of the other social ills that were were challenged by. There are obviously so many, we really do have to focus based on what we have to offer. So, and, you know, sometimes this one can even involve a bit of research. Uh, I mean, for example, here in Colorado, where I live, a really important issue is fracking, which is, you know, it, it's affecting our air quality, but it's also, uh, you know, damaging the atmosphere in other ways. Um, and so it's not surprising that a, a lot of us are, are focused on that. But you know, your situation, your location, your networks may, may be, probably will be very different. So what, second one, what do I have, uh, what are the good possibilities? And then the third one, having digested those first two, kind of putting them on a shelf, as it were, and sort of really going deep within, really meditating on this, what, what tugs at my heart? What calls to me out of those possibilities? Where's my passion? How does my compassion, how does my love really want to express itself? And, and it's not so much a decision here. It's more sort of trying to open up and get in, get in touch with something deeper than our usual ego. And I think that's really important because if we really would like to make a difference, I mean, we're obviously more likely to have a lot more energy and, and a lot more commitment to something that tugs at our heart in that way, rather than doing something just because we 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 think we should yeah it's not so much a an imposition of the will uh, or 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 uh, but rather it is kind of listening to 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 as you said where the the heart is tugging you um but let me ask you this many people find that that crisis the ecological crisis very uh despairing because the level of destruction that we have reached today and the rate of destruction that we have reached today in, 
on a global scale, planet-wise, is kind of almost dooming us for some people. Not only the fact that we are in the midst of the so-called sixth extinction, which means a variety of other species have gone or are going already extinct, but even our own potential self-destruction. And many people are despairing. Uh, what does Buddhism in general, and perhaps the non-attachment to results uh, concept in particular, have to say about fighting a battle that in all rational estimate we're going to lose? Well, thank you for that question, which I think really goes to the heart of the issue for many of us. Uh, and, you know, in response, uh, there I think there are two really important issues. Uh, one of them is, is looking at this question of despair. Um, despair is, is a dualistic concept. It, it's the other side of hope. Um, it's, it's a bit like optimism, pessimism. They kind of feed off each other. And it's really, really important to distinguish between despair and grief, right? Uh, despair, hope, that's a kind of a head trip of uh, thinking about the future. It, it's, it, it, in fact, if you look in Buddhism, there's no discussion of hope anywhere. Uh, it, it would be viewed as a distraction from what, what's really important. So hope, despair, bodhisattvas don't buy into that game. Um, Whereas grief is, is very different. And I, th I think it's essential for us to feel grief at what's happening now. Grief is more bodily. It's more present. It's right here and now. Um, I remember I was in London a couple years ago, and there in downtown London, there was a little monument to the victims of 9-11. And it said just very simply, grief is the price we pay for love. And, and it's true. It's like, you know, grief has another side too. It's love. We grieve because we love. If we didn't love, we would never grieve. But also if we repress our grief, which many of us do because we're so afraid of being overwhelmed by it, well, in a way we're repressing our love. It's like it's, they too go together. And uh, one of the really important things in our Ecodharma retreats that we do up at the Ecodharma Center where I uh, would teach sometimes, um, you know, we have times when we come together and we share our grief, we share our anger. And that's really empowering, especially doing it with other people, realizing what they're feeling. So grief is, I think, necessary in order to really be in touch with what's going on, to be activated, to be motivated by our love. Uh, but the despair, hope game, that's different. Getting to this idea of of acting without attachment, I I, I think what what opens the door to that, um, well, part partly it goes back to what I said earlier about grounding oneself in the meditative practices that do give you a kind of equanimity to deal with really difficult situations, but also another essential Buddhist principle, especially in Zen is the idea of don't know mind. The truth is we don't really know. You know, We know some things. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Is it too late? 
Are we already past tipping points? Is civilization as we know it doomed? It's possible, but we don't know. And it's important to be honest about that. So in the context of that, what what is really important and what it, what it really comes down to is that bodhisattvas, ecosattvas, um, they are motivated to do the very best that they can, not knowing if anything they do is going to make any difference whatsoever, right? And that's the meaning of non-attachment to results. You know, for sure, we're we try to be strategic. It doesn't mean it. It doesn't mean results don't matter. Of course they do. But in terms of our ability to control those results, we do what we can. But at a certain point, it's out of our hands, and we can't get caught up in, in, in the, in in getting trapped in discouragement when things don't work out the way that we want them to, right? I'm, remain, I'm reminded of uh, Wendell Berry, one of the great American writers who said, you know, uh, how did he put it? We don't have the right to ask whether we're going to be successful. The only right we have is the right to do what's right. What does this earth call upon us to do uh, if we're going to be able to live on it? And the, the other thing I just add add to that, another way to look upon it is our ecosattva activities are our gift. They're like our gift to the earth, our gift to each other. And like every other real gift, you don't give a gift because you expect something in return. You give it freely. You give it with non-attachment to results, which is just what the Buddha emphasized. The Buddha himself said, people, you know, the, the actions of an awakened person are nidasa, without expectation, without without the, that grasping at results. That reminds me to par parallels uh, that I remember all over the world. The first one is in, I think, the, the, the Bhagavad Gita, where Lord Krishna was talking to Arjuna, perhaps, and was telling him that you have the rights of to your labor, but not the right to the fruit of it. Um, Philip K. Dick, interestingly enough, uh, said somewhere that just because something bears the the mark of the inevitable, it doesn't mean that we should go along with it willingly. And then when I was in the army and I kind of, you know, I, I grew up in Bulgaria and over there you had to go to the army as a conscript or, uh, or you go to jail, basically. Uh, and I, I felt trapped uh, for a while there. I was reading Carlos Castaneda, a book about Don Juan, and and interestingly enough, in in the, in that book, I underwrote uh, underlined a passage somewhere where it said, Don Juan was saying that the will is that which allows us to fight a battle, which under all rational estimate we are supposed to lose. So I I found those very inspiring both when I was in the army, but but I've carried those ideas throughout my life. And, and every time when I kind of find myself in a hopeless situation, uh, I find a lot of refuge in them and, and kind of motivation to keep going, if you will. And a lot of times what we think of as inevitable is not, right? I mean, it's it seems inevitable because everyone expects that. Like I'm, you know, I'm old enough. I grew up in the Cold War and we just took for that for granted and the Soviet Union and the communists. And then just one day, it seemed like overnight it crumbled. Likewise, uh, uh, Nelson Mandela, 
in South Africa. It's like one day he's in prison. What is it? Rikers Island. The next day it seemed like he was free. And the next day it seemed like he was president. What? What's going on here? It's like, you know, the, the real potentials. It, we so easily just accept the way things are and think that that's the way it has to be. And as you're saying, uh, often that's not the case. And one of the most amazing thing things about or elements about both both of those transformations was the fact that both of them happened relatively peacefully. Uh, both the collapse of apartheid and the collapse of the Soviet Union were presumed possible only after a very protracted and bloody kind of whether interracial or or kind of civil war in the case of the Soviet Union. And yet none of those happened. And I, you know, I think that's because there had been a change of consciousness, that the whole system had been hollowed out, uh, that the people in in the Soviet Union and that Eastern European bloc, uh, they they had lost, you know, basically the ideological war of 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 commitment that had been lost. So the whole thing was hollowed out, and and when it collapsed, that's why it could collapse so quickly. Change of consciousness, which is interesting, because of course that's what. That's what Buddhism is all about, right? Joanna Macy has talked about three different types of action, you know, defending what's left, creating new structures, and working to change consciousness. And obviously, Buddhism is is one, one element of that third. Let me bring in an alternative suggestion from our friend Jundo Coin. Uh, I had Jundo here a few, maybe a month or, or two months ago on my podcast, And he would agree with some of the uh, kind of urgency that we have with respect to the climate change. But his take, and I'm kind of simplifying this for the sake of the argument, but his argument was that Buddhism is way too slow, it takes way too long, and we don't have time for it. And so his opinion is embrace technology and start putting brain implants into people. Brain implants that, for example, if you're a criminal with certain kind of violent past or a child abuse record or anything like that, you would have this kind of a brain implant which could, could moderate or maybe even completely extinguish your desires to do violence or to abuse children or what have you. And also generally for other people, it will be able to moderate or even if not entirely eliminate our craving. And so Jundo's proposal was kind of taking this technological shortcut, if you will, which kind of really blew my mind. And and the funniest thing of all was that I am the supposedly technophile. I argued against it. And I, I argued that technological shortcuts never work, that they usually take double the time and double the effort and at double the cost. And him, him who is supposed to be the technophobe, he was arguing the opposite. He was arguing in support of brain implants and, and changing us not through uh, our kind of uh, ethical and moral personal growth, but rather through uh, technological enlightenment, if you will. <laughs> wow. I have to say it's the first that I've heard of that kind of proposal. Um, he has a whole book about it that's upcoming, and he's looking for a publisher about it. <laughs> for interesting. It. No, 
uh, I just wanted to offer a quick comment on what he said about Buddhism being too slow. Uh, I mean, in in one way, he's certainly right that you know traditional Buddhism is is very much limited, and even the way the path to enlightenment works. I mean, it takes years of meditation. Uh, so I I assume that's what he's referring to, um, and I think there may well be technological possibilities of a different sort. You know how, you know, we have uh, um, on, uh, I'm spacing out now and I, and I can't remember the name, but immersive worlds. Virtual reality or the metaverse. metaverse. I mean, I think there's enormous potential there to create virtual realities that could well encourage people that that would help people transform, understand more quickly than ever before. So when I think about technology and the contributions of technology, I think more in those terms, certain types of, I don't know if you want to call them games or, or, or situations or worlds that could well, it's like we're all familiar with games and how sophisticated they've become. Can we imagine Buddhist games, Zen games, where the game is, where the goal is enlightenment and there's different things that, that, that happen, in, including some kind of contemplative practices built in. So anyway, I, I don't know enough about AI or uh, those worlds to say for sure, but it, I find it kind of intriguing. But I like that very much. I, I, I think that that's an idea that I personally am 100% behind. You can perhaps, as you said, gamify ethics and morality and enlightenment even, and and you can create virtual simulations for enlightenment, which could potentially shorten uh, the duration of that kind of uh, process. We know that that works for PTSD. Uh, we know that it works for all kinds of trainings that, that not only soldiers do, that, but you know firemen do and doctors do and pilots do and all kinds of other professions and the list is only growing and will be growing more and more in time why not create a buddhist game where we can gamify enlightenment i love that i think it's a i think that's a brilliant idea and i could totally be behind that a lot more than than jundo's idea which i kind of sort of i told him i it's max way too much of the holocaust to me which is which is strange because he's he's Jewish originally from the Bronx, and 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 even stranger to come from him. Um, and you see, that's kind of my whole impetus behind my work for the last maybe fifteen years has been the the claim or the argument that technology is necessary, but it is insufficient. In other words. It is good that we have technology. I love technology, but I don't worship it. And the biggest things, uh, I actually interviewed uh, somebody else who wrote a book about uh, vegan meat. Um, and, and they were giving an example of a professor in England, which I ended up interviewing, who put it brilliantly, who said, every time that technology offers a solution to our moral failings, we fail ourselves. We fail to take the opportunity to learn and to grow ethically and morally. Uh, and, and, and it always comes to bite us later on. It always comes at a higher cost. So I don't think that there is really 
a technological shortcut to enlightenment in that sense that he's talking about. I don't think you can create a gene or a brain stimulation implant or anything like that, which would unfortunately make us all less violent or unless we become zombies, then we would have no freedom and no real awareness and then we'll be just puppets. But as long as we retain our freedom and our ability to be autonomous agents, then as illusory as that might be in some ways, but but then we are the ones who are responsible and therefore we hold the keys to both kingdoms of heaven and hell, if you will. Hmm. Um, I think you're exactly right there. And it, it, it just occurred to me how that applies to Jundo's suggestion here. I mean, when you can, when you consider here in the United States, uh, our criminal justice system, and and how corrupt it is, and how blunt in the way that it is subject to uh, electoral politics, right? Politicians play on tough on crime. And, you know, we know people of color, especially black people, uh, suffer disproportionately. The United States has by far what we have what is it, 4 to 5% of the world's population and 25% of the world's prisoners? I mean, we have a very problematic system. For-profit prisons. And actually, Jundo, Jundo was giving that as an example of a motivation why stuff needs to be done, because he's also a lawyer by education, and he has worked in that system. And so his claim was that his proposal stems from deep compassion for those people who are abused by the system terribly, and who would be better off, he thinks, with implants in their brain outside of prison than being locked behind the prison bars with nothing in their brain. I mean, in addition to the scientific questions of how how that could be done efficiently and, and, you know, legal questions, whether it's even constitutional, I can't see that as something that would evade the kind of political football problems. It's like that that would just become one more thing used by politicians to advance themselves. I mean, I just, because the system is corrupt, he's offering it as an alternative. And I'm saying, I just think that would become part of the system and it would be problematic for many of the same ways. Absolutely. And and uh, uh, it reminds me now in his defense, he was talking that people would not be forced to have it, but would volunteer. In other words, they would be given the option. You can either go to jail for a very long time or you can volunteer to get this brain implant and then we'll let you go home. Uh and because you would be moderated sort of internally with deep brain stimulation or whatever against your cravings to violence or child abuse or what have you, rape, you name, you name it, uh, you would be safe both for, for theirs, for, for, for the people around you and for yourself. But, but my, my response was kind of along your lines, which was like, who, because I come from a communist background. And and to me, the question is, who decides, you know, where's the benchmark? Who decides who who is to get what for how long? And who is going to, to kind of be 
uh, the authority that watches over how this is being implemented and 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 what are the checks and balances in the system and and my concerns uh, as someone who lived under communism is is that that system is rife for abuse and and once you get a brain implant of that kind who is to say that they cannot hack it and start manipulating you to do other things not just to uh, diminish violence and and so on but to vote specific ways or to buy specific products etc etc right and so to me the potential for abuse uh, the danger for abuse and the temptation for abuse for for those people that you're mentioning is way too high uh, than the any potential benefits and and a more immediate problem um Jindo's concerned about for-profit prisons, but the technology we're talking about is extremely expensive. And uh, uh, obviously, there would be a lot of money to be made. Um, but first of all, the technology doesn't exist, right? It's it's our ideas. But uh, obviously, it's, it's going to be very complicated, very sophisticated due to uh, uh, there's likely to be bugs and the corporations that have this patented, they're going to be making piles of money on this. So again, you're replacing for uh, for-profit prisons with for-profit implants, and I'm, and you know how how is that going to work? I mean, it it just seems there's there's too many issues, uh, too many of the same kinds of issues. I think we're on the same page here. This is just a pretty problematical. Technology. Well, let's move on uh, and talk about some of the other uh, potential crises that we're facing today. Could I add one more thing first? Sure, of course. Sorry to do that, uh, but uh, it, it just occurred to me when we were talking about the idea of immersive realities, virtual reality, and getting a more specific example of how that might even work. Thinking about karma. Karma is a really important teaching in Buddhism. You're reborn according to your karma. What you intentionally do creates, it, it somehow changes things, and it's going to come back and get you. And I, I just think how something like that could be easily, well, not easily, but it, it could be incorporated into those kinds of virtual reality worlds where, according to what you do, certain types of things are likely to happen to you as you're living in them. And I could just see that as, as being a bit more specific about the kind of ways in which those alternate realities might want to work. So I just wanted to get that in there. Sorry. Yeah, I like that. It's like each level of the game that you play, you would be rewarded or punished based, points taken or points given based on what you did and how you did in the previous level, uh, which is kind of like on the karmic principle, right? Strictly speaking, we don't call it reward or punishment. It's just cause effect. Yeah, that right. reward punishment is more Christian or something, but it's just cause effect. Right. My concern with that is that, you know, it kind of makes it very, and that's, that's I, I've always had a very soft spot for Buddhism in my heart as as opposed to all other major religions. But that's been one of the, the, the problems I've had with Buddhism is that kind of a cause and effect uh, relationship. And it's like, okay, so six million Jews got slaughtered in the Holocaust, together with the gypsies and, and the gays and, and all those people. And, you know, my mother died from cancer when, when she was 39 and all of this. Uh, and, and my wife was diagnosed actually two months ago with cancer and through just some extreme, extreme uh, set of circumstances, she had an operation 
and uh, uh, the pathology report came that it's a benign tumor. And only uh, one to three percent of people who are uh, diagnosed with her type of bladder cancer, only one to three percent of them end up having what's called, um, I think it's called urothelia, uh, urothelial papilloma, which is benign. And so, so, so for me, all of those examples say, well, those are all people who didn't deserve what they got. So does that mean that according to Buddhism, they had it coming because they were terrible monsters in their previous lives and they deserved what they got? And I've always had a problem with that. Yes, and I, I agree completely. I, I think that, well, first of all, notice the connection with previous lifetimes, as in the case of your mother and wife, pretty fine people. And so it's easy to say, oh, it must have been in their past lifetimes. Uh, so, you know, the, you never know, do you? But I, but I think it really distorts what the Buddha was getting at, that if you really, if you really look at what the early uh, scriptures, the, the Pali canon, what the Buddha contributed was the importance of, of motivation. What's the intention behind what you do? And it's not that you need a future lifetime or that kind of cosmological understanding. I think it fits in with very nicely with what we were saying earlier, that um, the world changes when our mind changes, right? Right. If, if, if a pickpocket is in a crowd, he's going to see people's pockets. If a Buddha's in a crowd, what's you know he's going to see their Buddha nature. It's like we create the world we live in most of all with our intentions, and likewise, that creates how people tend to see us and respond to us. And 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 I think that's the fundamental level that we can understand that our motivations, our intentions, change the world, and that's the most important part of our sense of self. That we have some access. We have, if we want to transform the way that we experience the world and it responds to us, change our motivations. We don't have to, we don't have to talk about, uh, you know, s s some of these horrible things. And of course it doesn't always work. If you're a Jew in Nazi Germany, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know, we have to acknowledge it's, whereas as, as you're pointing out too often, Buddhists have poo pooed it away and basically used religion to deny that tragic dimension. I mean, Christianity shares in that problem because, uh, you know, Christians also struggle with explaining how is it that evil happens to good people, good Christian God-fearing people, right? Why is it that they suffer just as much as anyone, the fates of the sinners, for example, right? And and they struggle to, 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 to answer that problem too. And that's true in, in most other religions too. Um, but let's let's go back to sort of, sort of the big picture again here, and, and let's talk about what, in your view, putting aside the ecological crisis, what, in in your view, are the other challenges that humanity is facing today? Um, well, I first of all, let, let me just be clear that when I'm talking about ecological, I'm just not talking about climate, right? Climate is just the tip of the iceberg, and you know, as we know, it's an absolutely urgent one. But nonetheless, it's connected, and it. But it cannot be. It's like not not all the ecological issues can be reduced to that. We have biodiversity loss of biodiversity. We have all of the types of pollutants in the air, 
in the ocean, in the water, in our bodies. Plastic. Soil erosion, ocean acidification, species extinction, plastic pollution, you, you name it, radiation, you, you name it. We have so many dimensions to the ecological crisis. That's right. Okay. I mean, we, we can pick a number of other issues. Uh, what, when I say that this is the most dangerous moment in human history, of course, <clears throat> I'm quoting Noam Chomsky. And he identified, in addition to climate crisis, he identified the danger of nuclear weapons. Interestingly, he said that back in, what, September 2020. At the time, I kind of poo-pooed it. And now, you know, we wonder with Ukraine, is this the beginning of World War III? We don't know. But uh, And the other thing he emphasized was the uh, decline of democracy, the rise of autocracy, you know. I mean, when I was young, there was the sense that the world was getting more democratic and so forth. And it's harder to have any naive ideas about progress, either social or technological or, well, simple technological. It, what am I trying to say here? I'll leave out the technological for the moment. But what I'm trying to say is socially, politically, any ideas about progress, I think, are really questionable now in, in terms of what we can see happening around the world, that so many states have tended to sort of slide back into autocracy, if not dictatorship. And as we know, Chomsky, this, Chomsky said this before January 6th, but even in this country, we're all aware democracy is much more fragile than we ever thought. In fact, one of our major parties seems to be not very committed to it anymore. So, so that's one, one huge issue. The other issue that I would really emphasize, and I've started talking about this uh, in Buddhist communities, is um, the incredible, already obscene and still growing gap between the wealthy and the poor, right? Um, and this is connected with the climate crisis as well, because when you look at carbon emissions, if you look at the 25-year period between 1990 and 2015, there's that a really crucial period when we could have done something, right? Um, when what we could have done would have made more difference when carbon emissions have just grown. But in that 25-year period, the wealthiest 1% of the world's population were responsible for double, double the carbon emissions of the bottom 50%. I mean, just to take that in, it's, in other words, the climate crisis is also a class crisis. It's an economic crisis. Uh, here, here in the United States, I think the, the top is it two? I think it's. I think the two richest, two wealthiest individuals are as wealthy as the bottom fifty percent of the people in this country. That the top one percent in this country uh, have wealth equivalent to the rest of the night of ninety-two percent. It's just. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. This increasing gap between rich and poor. Um, back in, was it the fifties or the sixties? The gap between the CEO, the salary of the CEO and the average worker was something like 30 times. Right. Now it's over 600 times and in some cases a thousand times, which means every dollar the poor worker gets, the guy at the top is getting. And it's like, what? I mean, 
Yeah. I think it was Felix Frankfurter, one of the Supreme Court justices, who said long ago that we can have great extremes of wealth and poverty in this country, or we can have democracy, but we can't have both. And, you know, the way I've put it is trying to connect. The reality is we don't really have democracy in any simple sense. We have the forms. It's plutocracy, which is a form, right? It's like it's basically controlled by the wealthy in terms of uh, the way that they use their money to lower tax base, to elect people, et cetera, et cetera. And we can't talk about ecological crisis and why it is that we are doing so little without recognizing that extremely wealthy people who largely control what's going on in this country, extremely wealthy people in corporations are benefiting so much from the present system that they have no desire to change it very radically in order to really address the kind of problems that we have. Sorry, that's a long answer to your question. That's okay. I can see how you're you're bringing kind of Buddhist compassion to modernity and modernity to Buddhism. Uh, but what I'm trying to do here, similar to you, is bring technology and ethics together. And so I want to give you another example of Elon Musk, for example, who uh, like Noam Chomsky was commenting on the most dangerous thing for our civilization. And in his view, that was AI. He said that AI is more dangerous than nukes because for in his estimate, and I think he's totally way out of the mark here, but in his estimate, nukes cannot destroy our civilization, but AI can wipe us out. I think nukes can totally wipe us out. But anyway, his his argument is that AI is more dangerous than nukes. Therefore, the most dangerous crisis uh, that we are facing today. Which is interesting because at the same time, he kind of has devoted his life in a way to fight climate change or to, to bring electrification to cars and solar panels and all things like that. And yet he thinks that AI is a bigger danger, apparently, than the climate crisis and, and even the nukes. So what can Zen Buddhism or your version of kind of a modernist, or if I can say maybe updated, upgraded version of Buddhism, Buddhism for the 21st century, I don't know how to call it, has to tell us about artificial intelligence and technology, perhaps, that we are facing as our kind of f both friend and enemy, it seems, in our daily lives now. Yeah. Um, well, before I get into AI, let me just say something about Elon Musk, right? Uh, it's interesting, when I was researching this stuff about gap between rich and poor, he, he struck out, uh, he stuck out because he said... Um, he acknowledged, you know, the fact that we have these billionaires and at the same time increasing poverty. And he said, basically, that's not a problem. He doesn't see it as a problem. And and I thought that was a very kind of odd thing to say. I've actually heard him say that anything that promotes concentration of power is against democracy. And anything that promotes decentralization and uh, uh, spreading of power, therefore, promotes it. So in a way, uh, and he said that at the, the, the Conference for Beneficial AI uh, in California a, a few years ago. So, so in a way, he came up to be very egalitarian. But of course, 
he says many things at many times. So, and he he can contradict himself. Well, I mean, I I can look up the article if you want, but uh, he, he definitely didn't seem to be concerned about that specifically about the gap between rich and poor. If I got it right, and I think I did, frankly. The other thing about Elon Musk, it it, it, it there's this interesting parallel, right? <clears throat> He's fascinated about going to Mars. You know, which settling Mars. Mars not only has an atmosphere, but because it doesn't have an atmosphere, it has no way to defend itself against all the radiation that would immediately or very quickly kill anyone who tried to, tried to live there. But there's this interesting parallel with religion that so often religion, you know, reassures us we don't really die. So we're happy to hear that. But we're going to go to somewhere better. And and just, just part part of that, it's like, the idea of sort of terraforming Mars, I'm just wondering what's the attitude behind it in the sense of, oh, you know, we've really screwed up this Earth. So The attitude is that you have to have a backup. You know, you have your files and you have to have a backup folder because your main system crashes every once in a while. And then you have to have a backup where you can restore the system from. And the argument makes sense to me in general. I just don't see it right now in terms of urgency, perhaps. But it makes sense that if humanity is all stuck on our planet, and if that planet goes to hell for one reason or another, whether it's self-caused or whether it's external by a, an asteroid or what have you, and we're wiped out, then we're all of humanity will be wiped out. So it makes sense if you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, the other thing you can do to keep the computer analogy is to work hard to make sure that, you know, you have uh, apps and systems on your computer that are going to protect it from being, uh, you know, it's like th there's, there's different things you can do, as we both know, you know better than I do, that can make it much less likely to get wiped out and and I would think it would be important to focus on those given that you know we don't know any other place in the galaxy or f for that matter in in any galaxy uh that have life and where it seems plausible that they would be able to live so it does seem a bit of a fantasy I'm just wondering uh this this how much does the fantasy distract or divert us from doing the kinds of urgent things that we need to do right here and now. Acknowledging, as you say, that there's no guarantee that there, some supernova nearby might not wipe out our civilization. That's possible. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. We can install firewalls and antivirus software on our machines, but the reality is if you're in IT, you know every once in a while your computer is going to crash no matter what. So you always have to have, it's just good practice to have a backup drive and, and even two back, backup drives if you can, actually one on-site, one off-site so that, you know, if there's a fire and like your house burns and if you have a backup drive in the basement, it's not going to survive, right? But if you have a backup site, you know, in the cloud or somewhere, you know, then you have higher chance of, of surviving any potential crisis like a fire or not just a system crash. Um, so, but, okay, so what can, what can, or is there anything that Buddhism can teach us or tell us about artificial intelligence 
specifically or technology in general? Um, I, I, of course, all Buddhism is pre-modern. So uh, it, the question is, what what is there within the teachers, within the teachings that can be extrapolated and sort of have some implication? I mean, one thing that stands out for me um, My my sense is that Buddhism wouldn't condemn. It's like Buddhism wouldn't offhand sort of condemn AI, nor would it approve of it. To some degree, what Buddhism would do, I think, is uh, look at the intentions, but also look at the larger context. So, I I think what stands out for me is the Buddhist teaching of interdependence. And you know. If you're going to talk about AI, you have to talk about what are the possibilities of the technology. You also have to talk about who are the people creating it, what are their motivations, where are they coming from, what kind of economic and political system is it being created within, how autonomous is it, how much will it be distorted, perverted, say, by authoritarianism. We were talking about implanting things whereby governments might be able to influence or control us. Uh, I mean, th those dangers are, are always there. So I guess the, the number one thing that comes to mind, and, and I appreciate that it's not very much, but I think it's really essential, is we'd always have to look not just at AI itself and what it seems to be physically able to do, technologically able to do, but always evaluate it in the larger social, political, economic context in terms of Who's doing this for what reason? What's their motivation? How are they gaining? How are they losing? What's uh, what's it doing to to society as a whole? How about the moral principle of non-suffering or or minimization of suffering? So, for example, I believe there are brain implants now to help with Parkinson's disease. Uh, I I have a, a Buddhist a Zen friend who I believe. He, he does have Parkinson's, and I believe he's had inserts that have helped with the pain. That's wonderful. I mean, unless there are uh, side effects that I don't know about and I haven't heard them, um, you know, we, we call them side effects. They're just effects that we don't like, right? So uh, unless there are these side effects, I don't see any, any problem with that. Yeah. How about uh, nonviolence? as a guiding principle towards or within our relationship to artificial intelligence. What does that mean? Well, so let me backtrack and, 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 and give you an example of how I see it, for example. So about seven years ago, me and my wife went vegan. And there's a diversity of reasons, you know, our own personal health, the health of the planet, the animals itself who suffer, obviously suffer when they're being raised in, you know, industrial production plants and suffer when they're being slaughtered mercilessly and so on. But another reason which is unique to my specific context is that it could be used as a model, as an example of a relationship between two uh, uh, diverse intelligences where supposedly one is superior and one is inferior. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that 
Just like, you know, we cannot justify our alleged superior intelligence as a sufficient reason as per why we're eating and killing uh, or, or, you know, wiping out, you know, 72 billion animals on our planet annually. I think the artificial intelligences who are allegedly going to be much higher of much higher intelligence than we are, they shouldn't have that as a as an excuse or as a reason to wipe us out. And we don't have any guarantee that they would adopt that kind of a principle, but we can sort of help them out by living as an example of how one superior superior intelligent species can treat supposedly an other species of supposedly lower intelligences just based on the fact that they can suffer or experience suffering too. And therefore, they should be treated in a way which shouldn't promote such suffering. And hopefully then they can take that model and embrace it as a model towards us. And, and we would be on the receiving end because if we flip that, that up, just like we're kind of mercilessly killing killing uh, all those animals, as I said, 72 billion per year, we shouldn't be surprised if the AIs or even aliens from space, who could be also of higher intelligence than we are, if they embrace the same moral principle or directive that we are, which is to say, I have higher intelligence, therefore I can kill you and eat you and do whatever I want want for, with you, you know, then we will be doomed. <laughs> And so to me, that was one of six or seven reasons as per why I embraced veganism about seven years ago. And to be quite honest with you, it's been one of the best decisions for me personally and and overall one of the best things I've done in my life probably. So I'm quite happy with that. Um, but But then there's another kind of a Buddhist alternative dilemma perhaps and, and you walk me through this and see if you how how is to is it to be resolved let's say um we have the invention of artificial superintelligence and you know many tech people see artificial superintelligence in very theological uh dimensions which is to say it would be omnipotent all-knowing almighty and all-capable in contrast to our mere humanity, right? Sounds like God. Yes, exactly. So uh, let's say that that artificial superintelligence does a kind of a suffering minimization algorithm. And it turns out, you see, that humans are the cause for the greatest suffering on our planet. And therefore... The best way to minimize suffering on the planet overall, among all living beings who are able to suffer, would be to simply wipe out humanity. And that would be kind of a global planetary utilitarian uh, uh, algorithm that this artificial superintelligence embraces. So the question I have to you is, what would a Buddhist do in this situation? What would a Buddhist would we resist? Would we fight back to survive? Would we argue in our own defense? Or would we 
embrace the fact that the world is better off without us and therefore go go willingly to our own demise. Mm-hmm. Well, I really appreciate the way that both of your comments zoom in on this concept of of suffering, right? And you know, you were reciting the four noble truths before. The first one is dukkha, uh, suffering in in the broadest sense. The Buddha himself said all he had to teach was dukkha and how to end it. You know, which raises this question: Well, maybe if we wipe out humans, we've wiped out suffering. It, yeah, it, it's interesting that. Um, in contrast to the Abrahamic religions, such as Judaism and Christianity, Islam, uh, Buddhism, like the other Indian religions, uh, hasn't just focused on uh, humans, uh, but all sentient beings. So, for example, uh, in the Zen tradition, we we recite the Bodhisattva vow, uh, sentient beings, living beings are numberless, I vow to save them all, right? So the idea is uh, our concern about suffering isn't just restricted to us, but it concerns, among other things, all the animal species that are dying out, but also all the animals that we are causing suffering to. I remember reading recently, by far the most common bird in the world is the domestic chicken, you know, many more than any other type of bird species in the world. So, So there is this this great responsibility there. By traditional ways of understanding Buddhism among some people, they might approve of what you said. In other words, they might go along. It's like, oh, well, that just gets rid of suffering. Although the Buddhist idea is that if you haven't realized something, if you haven't really awakened that karma is going to be reborn. And some Buddhists would say, if if life on earth, say, gets wiped out and there's no humans left, which is a possibility, of course, um, then they'll have to be reborn somewhere else. What that means, where that somewhere else is, I don't know, they don't know. But the idea is that the karmic tendencies that cause suffering are still functioning and still would require some kind of rebirth. So it's not just about stopping rebirth. It has to be done in a particular kind of way. But let's say that the AI comes up with a way to kill us in a very humane and and the least Well, that's suffer- not the issue. Yeah, but the, the issue is should we fight and resist or should we go along with it? Well, let me answer indirectly by saying that I I find the usual Buddhist way of talking about suffering as sort of too one-sided or 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 limited. That the other side of that is what I might call flourishing, to, you know, not only human flourishing but flourishing of the whole biosphere, right? So. On the one hand, we want to stop our suffering. We want to stop the suffering of all living beings. But on the other side, you could understand the Buddhist teaching as helping this flourishing. And you could understand the role of our species. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our species woke up, if we managed to get beyond our individual and species and nationalistic egos and realize that we are one, that our species, like every other species, is an experiment of the earth? And in us, the earth is becoming conscious, self-conscious in a special kind of way. 
And rather than using that, we're special, we can abuse. And what if we saw our role on this earth as we are the species that realizes we're no better than any other species? And what if we understood our role as helping the whole biosphere to flourish? What if that was the meaning of human life, a way of acknowledging our interdependence, that our own individual and species well-being isn't separate from the well-being of the whole? You see, what I'm pointing to here is we could understand the role and and even the meaning of the human species in a kind of evolutionary ter- evolutionary direction, which in a way may be necessary. We may need to evolve in we may need to evolve in this direction if we're going to survive at all, given the kind of ecological crisis that we have. In which case. Uh, the criticism of, you know, let's just destroy human beings, it, it would deny a kind of evolutionary process going on whereby we could be playing a very different type of role on this, on this earth. So if I get this right, you're kind of hoping that we would kind of have to, we would be able to break the horns of the dilemma by finding enlightenment by by finding a third way sort of like a buddhist way where we can sort of peacefully coexist so that it wouldn't be necessary that we are wiped out to minimize suffering but we would actually make that unnecessary by changing ourselves through enlightenment in one way or another Well, enlightenment in the sense here of realizing our non-separation, our interdependence, our non-duality here, in which case it follows naturally, it seems to me. But that also, you know, there's this problem. When when you look at sort of ancient civilizations like the Mesopotamians or the Egypts, Egyptians, you know, uh, Incas, Aztecs, Mayas, they, they all had this idea that they had an important role to play in keeping the universe working. You know, we're all aware of the kind of gruesome Aztec example of they had to cut out the hearts of the war captives and offer them to the sun god. Otherwise, things would fall apart. The fundamental idea there was that we had a role to play. We were kind of, and you know, like the Mesopotamians believe, we've been created by the gods to serve them. Okay, well, what is our role? And you could say a lot of the dukkha of being a human being right now is you know, we don't know, you know, we, we know we're here for a little period. It seems like all we can do if we're lucky enough is to enjoy ourselves if we can, while we can, as much as we can until we die. It's like, whoa, is there something else going on here? And what I'm suggesting is the ecological crisis may be, the positive side of that may be what makes us realize, hey, we are we have a role to play. We are an organ of this biosphere. We have a possibility here to serve the well-being of the whole, and in, in which case we are, are ourselves a vital part of, of that whole, that flourishing. In other words, the obstacle is the way, and this crisis is an opportunity for us to grow. The obstacle, just, you know, just as Zen or Buddhism generally sees the fundamental delusion as the delusion of separation, but it's almost always understood that individually in Buddhism. We have the larger version of that 
our species or certainly our modern now global civilization, we understand ourselves as separate, our well-being separate from the well-being of the earth. You know, we can exploit it. And that's the fundamental dualism. That's the fundamental delusion that's causing suffering. And we're realizing the hard way that our well-being can't be separated from the well-being of the biosphere. That's what the ecological crisis is all about. And it therefore offers us, you know, this opportunity. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something to learn here about what we are. There's, there's this famous story in Buddhism right after the Buddha became enlightened. He was challenged by Mara. You know, you think you're enlightened. Who, who verifies? Who authorizes? Maybe that's just your fantasy. And the Buddha f- sort of famously, with his right hand, he touched the earth and he said, the earth is my witness. And I don't even know what that means, but I get chills up and down my spine every time I think of it. But it does imply for me this sense of a more integral relationship with the biosphere that is not only the potential now, but also, as it were, almost like required if we're going to survive the next century or so. Let me give you two other proposed uh, uh, or, or two other people's opinion. One is Peter Singer. I interviewed him a few months ago, maybe actually a couple of years on my podcast. And since he's kind of a utilitarian philosopher, he said, yeah, if if that's the context and the world is better off without us, then I would go willingly. <laughs> I'm not sure the world would be better without us. That That's my point. So Yeah, I understand that. But in his opinion, if that's clear, if that's clear, uh, and some have made that argument in the past, by the way, or, or even in recently, that, that the world would definitely be better off uh, without us, then he says if that's clear, then then it would only make sense that on utilitarian grounds, we go willingly with it and we don't fight it. Now, going back to Elon Musk, he says for the AI danger and for this kind of a problem in general, maybe, if you can't beat them, join them. That's his kind of argument. And so his proposed path is is a kind of a transhumanist path, which uh, involves brain implants, by the way, uh, whether through his uh, startup Neuralink or other ways, uh, he thinks that we can join or merge with the AIs and in that way become better and therefore be able to resolve our problems and address all of our challenges with the help of the AIs while sort of us becoming better too or taking the next step of evolution, if you will, and becoming more than human, becoming transhuman, becoming maybe even eventually post-human and so on. What do you think of that that kind of a resolution? It kind of goes along Jundo's proposal. Yeah. I mean, some some Buddhists would uh, sort of automatically react against it because it's sort of not natural. But frankly, I don't think that that's really implied by Buddhism. And for Buddhism, you know, the fundamental criterion is is dukkha, it's suffering. And again, the other, the other side of, tough, of suffering in terms of, of flourishing, but flourishing beyond just sort of satisfying desires, you know, that, that there's something more going on there. Um, the, the issue I have with human with transhumanism 
or even post-humanism is that often it seems to be motivated by fear of death. You know, the idea that we can download our brain into a big chunk of silicon or something like that, as if death is the ultimate evil. And, uh, you know, the Buddhist way of approaching death, you know, it, it's much more like Socrates or, or some of the Stoics, it, that the solution to the dukkha of, of uh, fear of death is, is not to immortalize ourselves, but to understand, understand ourself and, and what it means to die in a different way. I mean, it's pretty clear in Buddhism, part of the dukkha is our inability to accept our mortality, and part of the solution is the ability to, to ac- accept that. I mean, frankly, I can think of few worse scenarios than billionaires downloading their consciousness into a silicon block, even if it were possible, and they're going to live on forever. I mean, the immortality of Elon Musk and some of those other billionaires, I don't see that as the solution to anything. Uh, (laughs) In fact, I think it might, you know, in, in terms of what would they be doing? Why would they be doing it? Uh, can we really trust their judgment? The fact that this would be so much a, a um, decided by economics and maybe sometimes political power. Um, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm very dubious about that, just on those grounds. So, David, we're kind of getting into the last part here of our interview, probably the last 10 or 15 minutes. But... I know you also wrote a book called The World is Made of Stories. So where do stories come to play a role here in what we were talking about? And in other words, isn't it correct to say that Buddhism, transhumanism, the technological singularity, artificial intelligence, you know, communism, fascism, uh, democracy, they're all just stories. Being human even, and so on. They're all just stories. So, and and as you say in the title of your book, the world is made of stories. So what does that tell us about anything? And what, if any, is the relationship between story, Buddhism, and applicable wisdom? Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't say they're just stories, but yeah, I mean, I think the important point is that in an important sense, they're grounded in stories. We already alluded to one example when we were talking about the collapse of communism, the fact that the fundamental story, you know, the the egalitarian story that communism justifies itself with was already hollowed out, was already rotten. And that's why the political structure could just collapse so quickly when it did. And, you know, pretty nonviolently, like you said, right? I mean, Buddhism... Unlike the Abrahamic religions, where the issue is good versus evil, for Buddhism, it's delusion versus wisdom, right? Or ignorance versus awakening. And, you know, delusion is all, you know, it's all about how the concepts and the ideas in our head distort the way we experience the world. Uh, and, well, also the desires. Um, so so the idea of stories is is just another way of looking at that, that... Most of the time, uh, when we see the world, we're looking through a filter of our ideas about the world, our stories about the world, what it really is. And we don't know this 
because we absorb those stories as we grow up. We basically buy into the same stories as parents and caretakers and our larger civilization. So um, out of that, some people think, well, then the solution is we need to get rid of stories so we can see the world as it really is. And actually, I mean, that that's a misunderstanding in the sense that we need stories about the world, about who we are in the world, that, that because they teach us how to live. That's how we learn what's important and 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 what we want. So so I think the idea isn't to get rid of stories, uh, but it's and it it's more important to sort of understanding how the storying works because a lot of the problem with stories is we don't know it's a story, we think it's reality, and then we get stuck there. And then we feel challenged when somebody offers a, a different story. Whereas what's really important is the kind of flexibility. We know we need stories. We need stories that are amendable, transformable, improvable. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's, that's the real challenge these days. One of the ideas that I've took take away, uh, like that I've taken away from your book, the world is made of stories was, and I'm probably going to do a poor paraphrase here, but that there is three kinds of freedom. The first one is to act out your story. The second is to basically rewrite the story, to write a new story for yourself. And, and the third one is to be aware of how story itself works, what are its limitations, uh, and, 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 and to kind of maybe even... I forget this part, but maybe even transcend that framework or to utilize that framework to the to the to the best way of your story. Help me out here. Well, it's it's more about the freedom that comes if you realize that your story is a story. If you're not projecting it, and but uh, you know realizing that it's something that you you can use and that you, you need some sort of story, that, that's very different from being trapped in a particular story. Yeah, and, and so there's tremendous benefits for that. But let me ask you this, because I'm working on, on my second book, and it's sort of tentatively titled Rewriting the Human Story, How Our Story Determines Our Future. And I'm struggling with it for the last two or three years, especially part two. So I'm, I'm okay with part one, which is called Story, and it explains what story is, how it works. Part two is called Our Story, and it explains what our story has been so far, how it works and where it's gotten us to. And then part three is the actual rewriting of the story, and that's where I'm really struggling with. So let me ask you this. My setup for my book is is the, the observation that I made a few years ago that we're kind of in between stories, that we are living in a world where the major crisis is one of the collapse of the story. Uh, and maybe Nietzsche put it, you know, uh, many atheists uh, celebrate the death of God uh, as a kind of a win or a proclamation. But for Nietzsche, it was more of a tragedy because it creates this vacuum and we don't have kind of anything right now to fill this vacuum with. So if you if you can say that maybe the 20th century was a clash of three stories, which is communism, capitalism and fascism. And obviously, capitalism came on top. And of course, Francis Fukuyama wrote the end of history in the 90s. The first 20 years of the 21st century have demonstrated to me clearly that capitalism is now itself as a story unraveling. 
falling apart. It's not up to the task to create the framework within which we can address our challenges and, and solve our problems. And therefore, we need a new story to act as the framework which would allow us to solve. You know, in other words, capitalism may even be creating the, the, the situation where our current problems are unsolvable within the story of capitalism. So in other words, we need a new story. And many people have realized that. And that's why we are now kind of in between stories. And so I'm trying to address this problem by, quote, rewriting the human story. So do you think that makes sense to you, first? And second, is a new Buddhist path a possible new story for humanity? Um that that's a very deep question so so let me respond by kind of integrating it into what i'm working on my next book if it's okay sure very sure. very very quickly um buddhism talks about the three poisons greed ill will delusion where do they come from buddhism doesn't talk about that but if you think in evolutionary terms sometimes they helped uh survival they helped to Sometimes the person who was greedy and violent would be more likely to have kids that would survive. In other words, it seems like there's some evolutionary function there. And if you look back at the evolutionary process, we can see some, some kind of negative things built into competition, both individually, but also groups stick together because they compete against other groups, you know. And when the other group isn't there, groups tend to fall apart. And I think that's what's happened after the fall of communism, you know, America falls apart after the Soviet Union does because we don't have an enemy anymore, right? So what I'm fascinated by is the role of religion because earlier religions, they're very much tied to empires. There's no distinction between sacred and sacred, right? The, the pharaoh or the king, he's also the high priest, if not a god. So religions tend to be also part of those separate... And then we get these axial age religions that came around the time of the Buddha, that millennium. And you get a kind of universalism. Universalism in the sense of all men are brothers, all people are brothers and sisters. You see this in Jesus, you see this in Buddha. The teachings are there. We obviously didn't do such a great job incorporating them, but they're still there. And I think what we can see the challenge nowadays is to... Well, the other side of, the, of those axial age religions, and this is where religion has been stuck, it's been talk about the solution is to qualify for some other reality, some higher reality, whether it's heaven or nirvana. And I think what we need to do is combine the religious and understand, hey, it's the earth, our home, that is sacred. And we also need to expand beyond the individual uh, expand beyond the universalism of other human beings to include the biosphere and other species, right? So the reason I, I mention all that is there is this wonderful new story that, that's coming from people like Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, where they're offering us a new understanding of evolution, that the human species is a way in which the earth is becoming more self-aware. And I think we can understand it in those terms, that that is how, uh, and and that involves a more sort of metaphorical way of understanding some of the uh, some of the teachings, so that we're not, uh, you know, c caught up in 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 some of the emphasis on trying to 
It's like when I say metaphor, religion has always been about transcending this world so often, at least the main religions, qualifying for something better. And I think we need to reduce that metaphor and understand transcendence. Transcendence is transcending our usual way of experiencing the world, transcending our usual sense of self, transcending greed, ill will, delusion, realizing our interdependence, our interconnectedness, our non-duality, if you will. And I mean, I think this is the new kind of story. It has to be a story that involves acknowledging our uh, our interdependence, that our well-being isn't separate from the well-being of others or other species or other ecosystems. I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. And in a way, I think we're thinking along the same lines. What is this new story? And this is the direction that I've been thinking about that we have to move there. Does that fit into your understanding? Yeah, or? yeah. We're both seeking the new story. And, and what I'm gathering is that for you, that new story has to have elements that uh, do not transcend our context or our reality, but rather transcend our evolutionary baggage or 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 the the the, the three poisons that that Buddhism talks about to be transcended in that new story. So in a way, it's kind of like a new Buddhist story. Uh, with obviously with with Buddhist uh, ontology, but kind of transcending into a, a kind of a more modern, uh, adapted story to our to our current predicaments, um, if I get it, and 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 that makes total sense to me. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, consistent with your story? What would absolutely? Uh, one of the reasons why I brought you here, and, and I'm bringing many other people. And by the way, I I have uh, the universe story and uh, branch film on my radar too, and I am uh, going to ask him to come on my podcast and read his book and all of that is. Precisely because I agree with you that Buddhism has a lot to offer in that sense, and definitely will be part of the future story, uh, at least uh, as as little as you know, compassion and non-suffering principles, which are major principles in my book, minimization of suffering and and compassion and so on. Um, so, yes, definitely, definitely. Definitely, we're in agreement with that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So, David, we've been talking now for, for a couple of hours already, and we had some interruptions, some fire alarms happening and so on. We covered a variety of topics and disciplines from philosophy and theology to um, uh, Buddhism, artificial intelligence, uh, ecology, or, or climate change, and so on. What do you think is the best way to wrap up our conversation? What's the message that you want to send us away with? Well, you know, I really like those fire alarms. <laughs> I mean, uh, taking them metaphorically... The, the the correspondence is is pretty uh, is pretty interesting, isn't it? The, or the synchronicity, I guess I should say, that you know we're having a very nice conversation, but let's always remember the larger context. You know, I think Chomsky's right. This is the most dangerous moment in human history, and you know what what you and I are are doing is we're engaged right now, talking about the connection, how we've got into this mess. 
and what kinds and, and we can see the old stories are falling apart and you know we we're, we're just struggling working in our own way trying to sort out the new kinds of stories that we both realize are necessary but you know we also have to keep in mind that stories in in and of themselves are only part of what is needed remembering Joanna Macy she's also talked about the importance of preserving what's still there and creating new structures so you know the the background always in in my mind is for the bodhisattva or ecosattva the the story has to be balanced by some kind of engagement there is an engagement in the story of just what we're doing the way we're talking but we also need to keep asking ourselves what else might we do both individually and collectively to bring not only bring this story to awareness but also to work toward making it real in terms of how it actually is is operative in the world you you know earlier i talked about those three questions what do i have to offer what's the possibilities uh, what calls at my heart that can be done in groups too groups can use those as discussion points and i i think we we need to come back to that and and come back to that periodically keep reasking ourselves uh given the situation given don't know mind given how maybe things are developing in a what what do i have to offer and what really tugs at my heart so keeping that keeping that fresh i just think is really really important and what are the best places perhaps for people to follow you and your work well thank you for that soft question <laughs> um well first of all i do have a website davidloy.org which uh has a lot of material there more than anyone can read but there's also podcasts and videos interviews talks etc uh and that basically it expands on the sort of things we've been talking about today uh the other thing is i'm one of the founders of this new rocky mountain eco dharma retreat center above boulder uh rmerc.org uh and uh we offer eco dharma retreats where the kind you know the kinds of concerns that we've been talking about what does it mean to be an eco sattva uh those those are things which we i mean we spend a lot of time basically all our time whether permitting outside and a lot of meditation but we also reflect together on the kinds of questions getting in touch with our own grief feeling empowered by that so you know if people want to follow up there are those retreats which i'm uh, teaching every summer i'd love to attend one of those retreats myself to be honest with you and colorado is such a beautiful setting for those retreats that i could hardly think of any better place for for doing that but if you we are to put it into a single sentence what would that be would it be something like don't forget the fire alarms or what what's the the one sentence sort of zen koan version of our conversation here how do we encapsulate the very essence of what we are talking about in like just a few words how do i respond appropriately to what's happening wow that's the essence of wisdom in a way how do we respond appropriately to whatever you know fate throws at us 
at any point in life. That's what philosophy is all about. That's what Stoicism is all about. That's what Epicureanism is all about. That's what Socrates was all about, of course. And of course, that's what Buddhism and Zen Buddhism is all about. That's what Bushido or Budo is all about, too. Wow. Wow. So often our response, though, is is mutilated or distorted by greed, by our negative feelings, by our delusions, you know, uh, by by all by all of those sorts of things. And so, you know, we usually need some kind of contemplative practice that can help us do that. How do I respond appropriately? David Loy, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Keep up the good work. If you guys enjoyed this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 